Hello and welcome to this Herbert Smith Rehills Corporate Governance Podcast. My name's Gareth Sykes and I'm delighted to be joined today by the Financial Reporting Council's Kate O'Neill, Director of Stakeholder Engagement and Corporate Affairs, and Miranda Craig, Director of Strategy and Change. And they're here with me to discuss a number of issues arising out of the government's eagerly awaited consultation paper on audit and governance reform, which was published on the 18th of March 2021. And that consultation paper is the culmination of a number of uh, reviews and several years of work, not just on audit issues, but also on broader corporate governance and reporting issues. It builds on and develops uh, nearly all of the themes coming out of the Kingman Review on the workings of the FRC, the Bryden Review on audit and how the expectation gap in relation to audit should be addressed, as well as the Competition and Markets Authority's long-standing review into the operation and workings of the external audit market. Those reviews produced over 150 recommendations, and this new consultation draws those recommendations together, setting out how the government proposes to approach and implement them. And it proposes some fairly fundamental reforms in a number of areas, including in relation to audit, governance and corporate reporting, such as new proposals around director liability and accountability, risk management and internal controls, as well as the audit and assurance process more generally, with much of that to be overseen by the new regulator, the Audit Reporting and Governance Authority, or ARGA for short. So in this podcast, we'll focus on some of the key issues for corporates coming out of the consultation paper. And I think the first important point to note is that this consultation paper doesn't just contain measures that would impact listed companies and other companies which are currently public interest entities or, or PIEs. So Miranda, which other corporates should be looking at this consultation and thinking about the potential impacts on them? I know, for example, we've had queries from uh, as far afield as Australia and the United States with those companies keen to understand whether they or their UK operations are in scope of the proposed changes. Yeah, that's a, a really good question. Thanks, Gareth. Um, so I think you know, setting the scene a bit here, the, the, the consultation's interested in sort of realigning what we consider to be public interest. Um, so looking more broadly at those companies whose failures would have a significant impact on society. So for example, in terms of job losses or pension bailouts, supply chain impact, things like that. And the current definition, which derives from the EU's audit directive is a bit of a blunt instrument. It doesn't reflect those factors. So that means, you know, if those companies fail unexpectedly, there will have been limited historic oversight of their accounts or their audits and limited enforcement ability by regulators like us other than in an insolvency situation or where there's been fraud or, or other criminal behavior. So the corporates who aren't currently pies but might be caught by the proposed new definitions should be thinking about looking at this consultation and responding hopefully. So this includes the largest AIM companies that would be those with a market cap over 200 million euros and the very large private companies and the consultation suggests two options for including large private companies. There's the weights test, so more than 2,000 employees or more than 200 million turnover and a balance sheet of more than 2 billion. Or there's the 500 test, which is over 500 employees and turnover of more than 500 million. 
there's pros and cons to both of those so the government really wants to hear views as to which would be a better option and the proposals are for the definition to apply to all companies in their own right and at the consolidated level and that's intended to ensure that large UK subsidiaries with overseas parents are captured within the definition in some way so BHS is a good example of a, a recent corporate collapse where you know, they weren't in that definition and, and they wouldn't have been um, if you only looked at it at the consolidated level because they had an overseas parent. So there's lots of issues to consider when applying this new threshold and base and the government really need to hear as wide a range of views as possible. And there are some open questions as well as to whether to um, include other types of entities, so Lloyd's syndicates and third sector entities as well. And I think it's important to really emphasize what Miranda's um, just said. There seems to be a misconception that this is already legislation. The whole consultation process is to hear from parts of the whole stakeholder universe, preparers, users of corporate information, investors, um, employees, everyone, because things like the definition of a pie will be absolutely critical to the scope and reach of what ultimately comes through the legislation and the powers given to the FRC as a new regulator, ARGA. Yeah, definitely. And um, there, there's an opportunity as well to shape the rollout of these proposals. So, you know, how soon should they happen? Should they start with a subset of public interest entities and then gradually, you know, roll out further so there's not a cliff edge and companies have got time to prepare? So views from corporates in particular on how, they, how we can manage that process so that they're ready and it's not a sudden change um, are very welcome. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to note, Miranda, that, that most of the proposals are that there is definitely a transition period envisaged isn't there. It's not as if those companies that would newly come into scope of, of, of certain of the elements of starting from day one, they would have a little bit of lead in time before they would have to comply with with certain of the proposals. Uh, and I suppose not least one of the proposals that, that has gained an awful lot of attention um, and is a key aspect of the consultation paper, which has been dubbed UK Sarbanes. Oxley, so a requirement in the UK for, for companies and their directors and, and possibly their auditors to undertake further and more detailed assessment on the effectiveness of risk management and internal controls and then report on these. Um, so Miranda, are we really looking at a, a, a Saab, UK Sarbanes-Oxley being introduced as a result of this consultation? I wouldn't call it a UK Sarbanes-Oxley, really. And it's good to be able to debunk some of the hype around this because it's been really hotly debated for quite a while. What the consultation does is it asks for views on, on three options, which aren't mutually exclusive, but there is a, a preference. So the first part of it is an explicit statement about the effectiveness of the internal controls and risk management systems. And that's important because it goes further than the current requirements for premium listed companies to have conducted and reported on a review of the effectiveness. They don't have to say how effective the controls are. Um, and there's some potential overlap there with the sort of you know, for regulated entities with systems and controls. And this could be an executive only or a whole board statement. So, so that's option A. Option B is then requiring auditors to report their views on effectiveness. So that's really just surfacing more publicly the views that they're already required under the listing rules to report to audit committees, but making that more transparent for external stakeholders. And then finally, there's option C, which is requiring a formal audit opinion of any statement that the directors make, which is sort of similar to Section 404B of um, Sarbanes-Oxley, but not entirely. Um, and the important thing is there's there's no equivalent to um, SOX 802. Yeah, so there, there, there are no 
10-year jail terms being proposed here. Um, and yeah. the government's preferred option is A. So, you know, the kind of starting small and then considering, well, is this having the kind of impacts and behavioural change that we want to see? And uh, is, is, it, is it informative? I think one of the misconceptions that has been trumpeted early on with the publication is people are not making the distinction. There are three proposals here. They're reading them as a collection of all three, and that's not what the government has in mind at all. As Miranda said, you know, the same read across to the US system are, are the wrong place to really look at this. Yeah, and like Kate said, it's, it's very open. This is a consultation. This is not draft internal controls legislation. It's asking, you know, what do people feel is most important? you know just more accountability for the board through the the making of this attestation should there be a requirement for them to have that audited at the moment the preferred option is to allow that choice of whether or not to seek exter external assurance be left to the um the audit committees and shareholders um which is much more kind of in line with how we tend to do these things at the moment anyway um but it, it's very early days in terms of putting flesh on the bone of those policy proposals so this is an opportunity for stakeholders to say what they want to see um, in any eventual legislation. Thanks, Kate and, and Miranda. And Miranda, just to pick up on one of your comments there around shareholders being able to shape the assurance processes of a company. Uh, one of the proposals in the paper is for a company to have to have an audit and assurance policy. So what is or what will be an audit and assurance policy? What would it cover and how would that work in practice? Yeah, I mean, I think the audit and assurance policy was one of the recommendations in the Brighton report. And the idea is quite simple, but as ever, the devil will be in the detail. The proposal is that companies should be required to set out the intentions for their audit and assurance framework in a policy format, which would be subject to stakeholder input and an advisory shareholder role. The policy would include a description of the Audit Committee Board's approach to internal and external audit, how this links to their assessment of relevant risk and resilience factors, and I think resilience is an important word there, and how, if at all, the directors intend to satisfy themselves that their reporting disclosures can be relied on. So in this way, the government hopes the proposals can be tailored and proportionate and, even more interestingly, sector-specific focus. So really reflects the type of industry or areas their business operates in on matters of material interest to shareholders while still maintaining some consistency and comparability. So, it could, you know, they, you could envisage here, for example, more focus on climate risk in some sectors, maybe perhaps like energy or mining where this provides an avenue for investors to hold directors to their net zero commitments by seeking greater assurance on these areas, which are likely to affect the long-term sustainability of the company's business models. So the government wants to find out people's views on what minimum content the policy should contain, how frequently it should be published and voted on, and the scope and coverage than the preferred implementation route. I think that's really important to look at the you know, the really the proportionality of this part of the con consultation document. And the government is trying to reflect the different types of businesses and the different type of risk environments in which they operate. And I think that should be welcomed because too often people have complained about one size fitting all being imposed on different sectors. Yeah, and proportionality, I think, is a theme that 
is important throughout the consultation because uh, we're very, very conscious that any new requirements um, could, could be seen as burdensome, um, imposing extra cost on businesses at a time when um, that's really not something that, that, that the economy uh, wants to see happening. And so making sure that there is a, a justifiable reason for implementing a proposal um, and that it can be done proportionately so it's not one yes. size fits all I think is really important. Great so thanks Miranda and I suppose Kate picking up on um, your comment around long-term uh, sustainability I think another interesting uh, proposal in the consultation is around the new resilience statements in the annual report and accounts which would replace both the current going concern statement and the current viability statement um, and from my perspective at least it's it's not a particular surprise that the viability statement is 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 going to be abolished um, notwithstanding the fact it's only a few years old I think it was only introduced back in back in the 2014 edition yeah, uh, and that's right great work by the the FRC lab in particular trying to push up reporting um, they seem to remain stubbornly boilerplate with with most companies coalescing around a a three-year period, regardless of, back to your point that you've just mentioned around sectors, regardless of which sector they seem to be operating in and their different risks, uh, challenges uh, and strategies. So, Kate, what are the proposals around the the resilience statement uh, and what would companies have to do to do differently if those proposals are implemented? Thanks, Gareth. And it's absolutely correct to say that the viability statement hasn't fulfilled the intention or its potential and that many companies have really looked around that three-year horizon regardless of whether that reflects their business planning cycle or other relevant factors. And investors and other stakeholders you know, are clear that they need more informed reporting than that. And I think one of the themes that's going through the consultation document is what do investors want as well as the other parts of the stakeholder universe as you'd be well aware, quite often the questions are, well, where, what do the investors think of this? And I think their voice really needs to be heard in this consultation document. So we don't have a situation like in the past viability statement, not fulfilling its potential or having a usefulness that we can be felt by companies and all of the, their stakeholder universe. So the resilience statement proposals bring together short, medium, and longer term reporting. And the short term incorporates the going concern requirements and disclosure of material uncertainties. And certainly this last year has heavily emphasized the need to be as transparent as possible on both of those issues. The medium term section replaces the viability statement and assesses prospects over a five year horizon and brings in proposals for reverse stress testing scenarios. And the longer term section would not be prescribed content, but would offer the opportunity for companies to explain how they plan to address risks to their resilience over a longer horizon. So the government is seeking views on the minimum content of the resilience statement. And as with many of the other proposals, views on scope, coverage and implementation route, especially for those companies that might be caught by a different pie definition, that implementation route will be absolutely key. So what's, in, what's different? It helps recognise that there's an inverse relationship between the time horizon and the degree of certainty. It may help address reticence in some companies associated with liability concerns, etc. 
So really requires most of the thought and transparency on the medium term element. I think there's an important point to make that increasingly valuations are based on elements which are hard to measure. So the investors are going to continue to look to the annual report and accounts both to tell them about performance over the preceding year, but also are going to put more pressure on directors to articulate their strategy and the potential financial impact of their decisions. And that's across everything from employee relationships to supply chains, not just the more traditional boilerplate approaches that have been used by some companies in the past. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for that, Kate. And I suppose the final point that I just wanted to mention in relation to corporate reporting was the proposals to give Arga greater monitoring and review powers in connection with with corporate reporting. And I know that the FRC is already uh, adapting and changing its approach to to review and and monitoring pending being given uh, powers uh, uh, as Arga. So what should companies uh, expect in terms of monitoring and review activities now? uh, And how will they change going forward if if the proposals in the consultation paper are introduced? Well, I think um, we're expecting a few jokes about Arga and ovens and all of that type of stuff when we do become the new regulator. And I think um, I'll pass over to Miranda in a minute, but I think it's clear, as you've said, we've already started to implement many of the recommendations from the full reviews ourselves without that didn't require further legislative powers. One of those is the uh, separation of audit practices from other parts of consulting practices at the big audit firms. And we've even started to increase the volume of our CRR activity with focus on pies, but we won't be expanding beyond annual report and accounts to other investor publications. But I guess what we're really looking at is the powers that we need to take from us from being the FRC to expanding our remit, and and I suppose our impact, Miranda, would you say, on having more power to enforce and bring about the right outcomes for stakeholders if some of these expanded remit um, are not met by our stakeholder universe? Yeah, absolutely. And I think when it comes to corporate reporting, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's one part of our, our broader supervisory approach. And um, we need to, it would be pointless if we just sat there, reviewed everyone's corporate reports, told them all individually what we thought they needed to improve, um, and then just kind of sat and twiddled our thumbs while they did that. And, and we didn't see a sort of a systemic improvement and, and, and a gradual increasing of quality across the sort of entire corporate sector. And sometimes, you know, as, as you some of your listeners will know um, we, we focus on specific themes and specific areas each year so like we might focus on cash flow statements or we might focus on um, particular disclosures in relation to new um, accounting standards and things like that especially where we see um, a, a, a general degrading in, in, the, in the quality over time of, of some of those um, disclosures and, and what the difference will be um, when Moraga is that we'll have um, broader powers to look at the whole of the annual report. I think a lot of people sometimes are surprised 
to understand that we we don't currently and this is the same for audit we don't currently look at we're not able to look at um, the entirety of the annual report and um, request that companies improve their disclosures we can only look at um, the financial statements and that you know that's increasingly smaller part of the annual report um, certainly compared to you know, 10 15 years ago and uh, we've already started to increase the volume of our CRR activity um, because uh, as the number of pies is looking like it will increase, um, we're going to have to have, uh, be able to deal with a, a higher volume in order to maintain the same proportion of coverage. Um, and But we uh, won't be necessarily um, expanding further than we need to until we get there. Um, but the, one of the key points in proposals in the consultation is, is um, giving us the ability to direct changes to accounts rather than seeking a court order. Um, it's really costly and time consuming for us to do that. It's very rare that the court orders aren't granted. Um, and uh, although there will obviously be you know, a sort of a, a fair appeals process in order to not um, prejudice companies uh, by that change in um, in the system, we, we, it's not going to change our underlying process at all. I think that there have been some suggestions um, in sort of narrative since the consult was released that that somehow this is us circumventing due process, which it's it's not at all. And then there's something there about transparency as well. So at the moment, we don't all of our correspondence is private. We don't publish um, individual CRR findings, um, and actually that means that it's very difficult for stakeholders to understand what value the work that we're doing is bringing and for them to to understand in more detail um, you know why it is that we think that the quality of reporting is um, low in certain areas so uh, there will be proposals in there for, for powers to allow us to publish uh, that correspondence and summary findings um, we need to think very carefully about how and where we do that um, so as not to um, you know, prejudice confidentiality or, you know, create unintended consequences and you know, very much welcome um, views from respondents on um, how they think that would benefit um, the the market more generally or where they think the, the potential issues are. Fantastic. Thank, thanks for that, Miranda. And I suppose the other part of, of supervision that I just wanted to pick up on quickly um, because it was an area that got uh, considerable attention in the context of the, the previous reviews was uh, the proposals in relation to expanding potential director liability um, and giving Argus specific powers to, to sanction company directors if they breach the requirements uh, relating to, to company accounts and, and reports. So could you explain what the proposals are uh, in the consultation paper in that area? Before I pass over to Miranda to go into some details, I think this is a, a broad statement I've made, made is obviously there's been lots of media coverage over this issue. And I think it's probably the most complex and misunderstood area. And it's very tempting to stakeholders to listen to what we'd call knee-jerk policy responses to company collapses. As we all know, when a company collapses, the finger-pointing begins. People start asking questions, where were the auditors, where were the investors, etc. But the key point on proposals is that they seek to close the gap. And we've heard so many people saying this is a new liability, and it's not. It's creating a civil enforcement mechanism, obligations that are already there in company law. And I mean, Miranda, do you want to remind, I know that a lot of lawyers will be listening to this podcast, what those duties are? 
Um, yeah, so the, the consultation lists the selection. Um, there, are, there are many more that aren't included and, and you know, the question in the consultation is well, what should this cover? Um, so the ones that are listed are the duty to keep adequate accounting records, to only approve accounts if they give a true and fair view, the, the sort of approval and signing mechanisms for the accounts, approving the director's report and the statement for uh, on disclosure to the auditors and providing information and explanations at the request of the auditor. And those are some of the blander ones. I think there, there are some potentially more contentious questions there about whether as part of this enforcement regime, we should introduce um, some behavioural standards for directors, which is probably the more interesting end of the spectrum, because as Kate says, this is closing a gap. So directors have these legal obligations. So any director who says, how can I be liable for, for the accounts? Well, you sign them off. <laughs> so, and last time we checked, you were a director, you're liable. So the question is, at the moment, we can only take enforcement action against directors who are members of a, a professional body. And if those directors choose to resign their membership, then we can't um, enforce um, any breaches of their professional body rules. And that's the route that we most often have to take at the moment. And we often find that we're bringing these enforcement cases in respect of ethical standards um, that, that, that those directors have with, that come with their professional status. Now, very open question here because I'm there. I know that there are very strong views on this, but um, you know, directors do do need to think about not just what they do, but how they do it. And but but also, you know, with 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 um, not the sort of hysterical fear that perhaps um, some of the media narrative has stoked up, because it will continue to be the case, and certainly can't see any reason why it wouldn't be, that if you have, as a board, taken a decision in good faith, with mindful of your fiduciary duties and with the information that you have available to you, then, you know, no no court um, worth their salt is going to, um, you know, accuse you of not having um, met your obligations. But the that grey area in between where there are directors who don't do that, who don't take these obligations seriously and who just do things on the hoof and then when their companies collapse, you know, people are losing their jobs, pension savers are losing their money, you know, that's that's the kind of um, situation that we're trying to avoid here. So it's not um, you know, this huge sudden imposition of um, this massive regulatory routine for all directors, that's not the intention at all. And I think when the government talks about its agenda to build back, agenda to build back better, greener, fairer, it's trying to balance those interests between post-Brexit, post-pandemic, Britain being a great place to do business and an engine of growth, but also that it retains its reputation of having the highest standards of corporate governance. And, and some of these proposals bring that into an enforceable situation rather than comply and explain another type of regimes. Great. Thanks ever so much for, for that, Kate and Miranda. Uh, I suspect that there will be a large number of respondents to the consultation <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> that particular that particular issue. Um, the, the, the final yeah. area that I just wanted to touch on today was um, audit, which is perhaps surprising given that these reforms are often badged audit reform, but hopefully, as we've we've been discussing, there's an awful lot more more in there. Um, so in, in terms of audit reform, uh, I know the FRC has already been engaging with the uh, with the audit firms to start the process of 
of operational separation for their audit and, and non-audit businesses. And that's also picked up on in the uh, consultation paper. Um, but there are a number of other proposed changes uh, to the audit regime, which are uh, particularly relevant to, to, to corporates. And I think one of those will be the proposal that, that FTSE 350 companies will be required to use a smaller challenger audit firm to conduct a meaningful portion of their audit, um, whatever meaningful portion uh, means. Now, that uh, that isn't a joint audit. Uh, I don't think that's being proposed, but rather a shared managed audit. So uh, I suppose the immediate question I have is, what's the difference between a joint audit and a, and a shared managed audit? And what will these proposed reforms mean for, mean for corporates? Um, so look, our, our focus as a regulator has, and it always will be, high quality audit. But you can't have high quality audit without a resilient audit market. And you can't have greater resilience unless you've got more firms able to take on those public interest entity audits and do them well. And joint audit was the solution that the CMA proposed. And there's been, you know, in the run up to the publication of this consultation, there's been a great deal of discussion between us and, and Bayes and firms and, you know, anyone who's, who's got an interest in this topic about how to make that work and what's the best solution. But ultimately what government found was that the liability risks for the smaller firms just don't make it a viable viable solution. They, they're not going to enter the market and put up that risk and that capital and investment if they're going to be, be faced with the joint liability that joint audit brings with it. So managed shared audit is a way of allowing those mid-tier challenger firms to take on a portion of a pie audit and yeah, good question, what's the definition of meaningful proportion? Um, and that'll vary, I think, by audit. But it, it allows them to gradually increase their penetration into that market, build up their resources, build up their skill, their sector skills, and become a real viable alternative to the big four. Because often it's not the big four for um, large FTSE companies. They can't choose their incumbent, obviously, when they tender. They can't choose their tax advisor, who's usually another big four firm. And, and that leaves them potentially with two, they might be using one of the other two for some other work, um, which conflicts them out. And so they've really only got one, you know, and that's not a resilient audit market. We've heard some from many stakeholders, haven't we, Miranda? You know, they use the expression Hobson's choice, you've only got a few you can choose. And we would hope that these type of proposals would also develop different areas of expertise in emerging sectors such as, you know, fintech, blockchain, that perhaps historically haven't had audit focus or audit skills in those type of sectors. So I think that it's important that people see this as an opportunity to open up not just number of audit firms, but also specializations within those firms. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this isn't, you know, an overnight thing. The proposal is that FTSE 350 companies would need to open up to a challenger firm a meaningful portion of their audit when their tender is due. So that's going to be a natural staggering across the market because they don't, those don't all come up at once. And before we get to that point, there will obviously need to be very detailed proposals on how you need to go about deciding um, which portion of your audit should go to the challenger firm and the guidance. And in very exceptional, only very exceptional circumstances, would there be exemptions if, for example, the FTSE 350 in question just doesn't have any UK subsidiaries of any meaningful size that it's possible to audit, for example. But these proposals also need to come with some bite. So there's um, questions there about the extent to which Argo should be able to enforce or um, sanction companies who don't 
comply with the managed shared audit requirements. As a real backstop, there'll be a reserve power uh, for government to impose market caps if none of this works in the way that it's intended to. Fantastic. Thank, thanks ever so much for that, Miranda. Um, we've covered an awful lot of ground um, in this in this short podcast, but before I let you both go, um, I know that a number of the points that we've discussed today will will resonate with with listeners, and they will hopefully have views on on what's being proposed in the consultation. So, what what would you encourage them to do? Well, I think first off, I'd say is look on the FRC website for the number of roundtables and webinars that we've put in place a comprehensive program with base um, to help facilitate as much discussion around the big topics as we can. I think some people forget that the FRC is not just about audit. We also obviously have the corporate governance code and the stewardship code, which we're currently getting a lot of interest from across the fund management community who are very eager to sign, become signatories to the code, not just because it makes sense from a marketing perspective for attracting funds under management, but because they want to be able to help be held to the high bar we've set about their stewardship capabilities. And that means things like dealing with the companies they invest in management and board to ensure that you know, there is a good risk management system. There are good audit um, internal and external procedures in place. So I think I'd love people to come onto the website, look at all the opportunities that they have to have their views and voices heard, but also remember that the remit of the FRC is beyond just audit and the corporate governance factors are as much part of this consultation as those regarding accounting and auditing standards. Thanks ever so much for that, Kate. And thank you to both Miranda and Kate for joining me today. I hope that's been a very useful discussion and I hope we've provided an overview of the proposals contained in the government's consultation paper. Uh, for anyone looking for further corporate governance content, you can also find a podcast on the Herbert Smith Freehills channel where I discuss corporate governance and corporate reporting trends and developments with Maureen Beresford, Head of Corporate Governance at the FRC.